Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, and literature all discuss the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and when I think of 90s women, I think the first women that come to mind are the women's gymnastics team. I thought you were going to say Atlantis Morissette. Uh, well, you know, we already talked about her. So, you know, Dominique Daw, Shannon Miller, Carrie Strug, of course, Carrie Strug. That's just when you say 90s women, I think that's who pops into my head. And I'm Misty. And when I think of 90s women, I think of Ann Richards and Janet Reno and Madeline Albright. Because I'm fun. Big surprise. Super fun. Big surprise. All equally important women in yes. terms of history. Yes. So weren't the 90s supposed to be like good for women? You know, it really depends on how you want to look at it. So 1992 was supposed to be the year of the woman. Yeah, that didn't work out for us. And and today we're going to talk about part one of misunderstood women of the 1990s. You know, this is actually a, a larger theme right now. There's a lot of uh, revisionist history going on about the 1990s. Yeah, and if you go shopping, there's a lot of revisionist fashion from the 1990s. Yeah, I don't approve of that. It's bonkers. <laughs> But women in the 90s were the daughters of second wave feminists. They were delaying marriage and children because they had more options for education and work. And on paper, that sounds fantastic. And when we've talked about this, I think even in our first episode. Yeah. About how 90s women did have much more opportunity than women that came before them. So if you're comparing apples to apples on paper, yeah. it looks amazing. Yeah. I think that we just created these stereotypes or these archetype roles that we wanted women to fit into and so when it didn't when a woman didn't fit she became extremely misunderstood i mean women had a lot of things in the 90s that they that generations of women didn't have before them female high schoolers were doing better than male high schoolers in reading and writing. Oh, I thought you were just going to say we had female high schoolers. I'm like, we definitely had that before the 90s. And in 1992, the year of the woman, women were earning more college degrees. Title IX was kind of making good on its promise. We had access to birth control, which gave women choices about families, careers, and economic power. And by the end of the 90s, 30% of lawyers were women, 40% of tenured professors were women, we finished the 80s with Sally Ride, Toni Morrison, Madonna, Geraldine Ferraro. So, I mean, that includes space travel, arts, entertainment, and politics. Yes. Um, Which is why we had the Year of the Woman. It was because women were everywhere. Yeah. And Janet Reno was our first female attorney general in the 90s. Madeleine Albright, first female secretary of state in the 90s. Judith Rodin, first female Ivy League college president. Carly Fiorina, first female Fortune 100 CEO. More women were in office. We had a female governor in Texas. We sure did. We tripled the number of women in the Senate, which sounds really impressive, but... You know, this is how you lie with statistics, though. Yeah. It went from two to six. Two to six. But tripling it sounds amazing. It does. And that's why it was the year of the woman. We had riot girls. We had lady-led websites and publications. But... But really, what was happening is the more women who got power, the more power was taken away from them in a different way. So sure, you can have jobs and you can have more economic say, but this we're going to give rise to this popular culture that celebrates hostility toward women, that creates false narratives about women, and that pigeonholes women into one of maybe five acceptable 
roles for you to take? Well, and I think in the 90s, we had this public shaming of women. Yes. Well, definitely. That very much is a part of the culture. So you can be celebrated as long as you walk this very specific line. Yeah. But you take one step out of that and boom. And so, yeah, girls are doing well in school. Girls are going to college. Women are accessing career opportunities, but they're also having their bodies scrutinized, commercialized, commodified. This is when we gave rise to the teen magazines and all of the fashion magazines that really started to impact girls and women's self-esteem and self-image. We had more women self-harming, more women with eating disorders, more women attempting suicide than ever before because of this messaging that they are that they were receiving that we were receiving yeah. on a near constant basis. Yeah, and whether you realize you're consuming it or not, it's there. Yeah. So do you want to talk about some feminist lit before we get into specific women? Well, you do, so. I sure do. (laughs) This is weird. I'm going to talk about literature. I don't know if I would call this literature, but I guess it's printed as a book, so. It's in a book. It's literature. That's my basic understanding of what you do. No, no, (laughs) no. So I want to talk about Backlash, The Undeclared War Against Women. This is a book that came out in 1991. Okay, so somebody was already picking up on this in 1991. Yeah. Have you read this book? No. This is, I think, one of the first books I picked up that was like a feminist discussion of our culture. Thanks for not calling it a manifesto. Oh, no, it's not a manifesto. It's, it's a lot of very well thought out complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I think, really, really early in college when I read this. And it just, it's kind of like The Handmaid's Tale. It just opened this whole new world of thought to me. Yeah. So really, really, really love it. So I'm going to be really biased when I'm talking about it. Just take everything I say with a grain of salt. So the author is going to argue that even though women are having all these gains, and again, 1991, Mm -hmm. so fairly early, right before the year of the woman, there's an anti-feminist backlash that is happening because there are people in power who feel insecure about women gaining more rights, gaining more power. Right. And that's a recurrent theme throughout history. Whoever has social power doesn't want equality for everyone. And so she's going to give all of these reasons that we say women have, quote unquote, made it and can have it all. And then she goes into this discussion of what does that really mean? And do women actually feel like they have it all? And what she finds through the course of this study is that while we told women they had equal opportunities, they really didn't. What? Right. I'm shocked. And women were supposed to internalize their failures. So if you weren't hired for a job, Mm-hmm. If you weren't selected for a position or whatever the thing is, even though there might be s- systemic reasons that you didn't get it because you're a woman. Right. You were supposed to get it as I wasn't good enough. Yeah. So, again, we have systems of power oppressing and marginalizing women and people of color. But at the same time, sticking to this meritocracy theory that people have, which is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Exactly. And if you're good enough... You'll get there, which is ignoring all of the power structures and systemic problems. So in history, it's ignoring all of history. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that in 1991, somebody was already making that argument because I feel like public awareness of that kind of idea is fairly recent, at least in public conversation and discourse. She also talks about this narrative that's beginning to happen where because women 
are under so much pressure and because they're facing these new anxieties and not living up to this idea of quote unquote making it yeah, or having it all, that the women's rights movement was to blame. That it was the women's rights movement that had harmed women rather than helped them. The book argued that? The book argued that there's a narrative oh, that's yes. beginning oh, to yeah. say that. Oh, yeah. And um, for 1991, that's a few years ahead of its time, I think. Yeah. And then, so she actually finds some data when she says in national surveys, at least 75% of women say, no, the feminist movement actually helped make my life better. Mm-hmm. It's all of these other reasons mm-hmm. that it's bad, but you have certain media outlets that are going to start attacking the women's movement, again, as unfulfilled promises, making women into these strident feminists mm-hmm. that are anti-man. And we're going to talk about this on our next episode, but we are in many, many ways repeating the narrative yes. of the 90s. <laughs> yes. And so you saw this recently with like social media campaigns of like women holding up signs that say why I don't need feminism. Yes. Sure, there are women who feel that way, but there is this impulse to create a narrative that most women feel that way. And that's not true. Most women feel like the women's movements have helped make their lives better. Right. And then there's one more point she makes in this book that I think is really, really interesting. And it's the way that we measure how you, quote unquote, can have it all. And it's through capitalism, essentially. Yeah. So if you can buy the right stuff, if you can have the right credit card. The right house. The right house. And yeah. The right zip code. Yeah. Then that's how we know women have, quote unquote, made it. Right. When those things, again, one shouldn't be the thing that we used to measure, but two... Those are things that are set into place so many years before you personally are even born Mm -hmm. that you might not have that much power to control them. And it also sets up a kind of competition. That's true. Because if we don't have our own personal identifiers of what is success, of what I want for my life, if we are supposed to have a cultural shared notion of what is success, that means if your house is nicer than mine, you win. If my car is nicer than mine, I win. If you have cuter kids, not cuter kids, but if you have... (laughs) If your kids are, like, in a better school or in a better zip code, you know what I mean? Like, it sets up a kind of competition. And that doesn't... Whereas if we could just say, you're happy with your life and I'm happy with my life and I live... We all win. Exactly. But it also ignores the point that we're not all starting from the same place. That's true. I mean, if my parents are both Harvard graduates... I'm probably going to start at a better place than somebody who's probably had a teenage mom. You I know? mean, yeah, even if you're even if your parents both went to college anywhere, you yeah. had an advantage. Even if your parents both read books. If your parents are even together. Yeah. You have an advantage. Yeah. So it's just it's not taking into account all of these nuances of American life. The narrative is either you made it or you didn't make it. Mm hmm. And it's all your fault. Mm -hmm. And by the way, the women's movement is a terrible thing. And look how damaging it's been. Those women's libbers. I know. Yeah. So the book I want to talk about is Reviving Ophelia. Did you read this book? I've actually read it. So this is Mary Pfeiffer. And I think, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Didn't this also become a Lifetime movie? They did make it into a movie. Okay. But it's not really the same as the book, right? No. The book is, is like a psychological, sociological approach to studying adolescent girls and in the book it really indicates that there's this 90s culture that splits adolescent girls into their true selves and their false selves and that is a new notion in the 90s so think about a 90s girl abandoning her authentic self to fit in with cultural demands like thinness beauty sexual availability even 
what kinds of bands you like or what kinds of cars you want or what how you style your hair. So like social pressure. Yeah. So Mary Pfeiffer treated adolescent girls as a practitioner, like as a psychologist. She treated okay. girls who cut themselves, who acted out girls who had eating disorders, girls who had anxiety and depression. And the book really just kind of validates all of those experiences that girls were going through. I mean, girls went through these experiences before the 90s, but it became much more well-known and widespread in the 90s. And really, in the book, she talks about that one of the causes for this is mixed messages that girls were dealing with, right? Be beautiful, but beauty is only skin deep. Be sexy, oh, okay, I get what you're saying. but not sexual. Be honest, but don't hurt people's feelings. Be independent, but be nice. Be smart, but not so smart you threaten boys. Right? Like all of those things. So this Yeah, how very, do you do that? <laughs> exactly. And so you feel like you can't be yourself, but your, your public self is also never good enough. One thing she said in the book is that the 90s was a girl-destroying place in America. Which is interesting because... The top soil culture narrative is girls have all this power they never had before. They can do anything they want. It, she just said it's very hard for girls in the 90s to be idealistic or optimistic. And this book spent 26 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a, a Shakespeare reference, right, Ophelia? Yes. Okay. Yes. And girls were turning, she said in this book, to teen magazines to make sense of their own struggles, to find, to read about other girls who were going through the same kinds of things. And so there were pages of those magazines that were comforting because you found connection to other people. But then you turn the page and there are pages that say you have to look like this, you have to be like this. And so they were damaging to self-esteem more so than they were helpful in terms of connecting girls and sharing experiences. I remember those magazines from the 90s. Do you? Yes. I remember a lot of like dieting advice. <laughs> a lot of that, a lot of, you know, like embarrassment about having a period. Yes. There were a lot of that in the 90s. How uh, to get a boy to notice you. Yes. And how to tell if a boy really likes you. Mm. Um, Very important things we were concerned yeah. about. Well, I mean, those are the things that teenagers are concerned about for the most part. But <laughs> if we. <laughs> and then you got a teenager like me, it's like. Janet Reno. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're not a... I know. I was a weirdo. You're not a human person. I understand that. So I want to talk about why so many women in the 90s are misunderstood. So there are lots of women who we just remember totally wrong. And I, I love that, that we're in this new era that we're like revisiting those stories and really digging into it. Yes. We just got perceptions of these women from the fog of kind of the 90s culture, and we've been carrying these perceptions with us ever since. And social standards at the time, it was a wider understanding of feminism and women, but what that really meant was instead of being one or two things that you can fit, one or two boxes you can fit into, we'll give you five or six boxes. So it wasn't be who you are, be your authentic self. It was you have more than two options. But only six. Right, exactly. And if you weren't the right kind of whatever it is, fill in the blank, those women were misreported on and misunderstood. So, yeah, Lorena Bobbitt was the wrong kind of domestic abuse survivor. Okay, so let me tell you about this movie I just watched, the documentary about Lorena Bobbitt. Okay. I watched it a few weeks ago. I had so much of this story wrong. Yeah. I didn't even know she was an immigrant. Yeah. I did not know that until I watched this. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't know that her husband was in the military. I didn't know there was a history of abuse there. Mm-hmm. All I knew was that she went crazy and cut off his penis. Exactly. That's the whole narrative I had. Exactly. And there are lots of narratives like that from the 90s. I mean, Lisa Left Eye Lopez, who was in yes. TLC, she burned down her husband's house. Was it her husband or her boyfriend? Her boyfriend's house. And all people remember is that she was crazy and she burned down his house. Right. Well, he was beating her up and he shot a gun at her. Yeah. But all people say is, oh, she filled the bathtub with sneakers and she lit it on fire and she's a crazy person. And that narrative persisted. He was in the NFL and he was allowed to keep playing even though they had an abusive relationship. Why does that sound familiar? Yeah. (laughs) So those women were the wrong kind of domestic abuse survivors. Courtney Love is the wrong kind of female rock star. And she killed Kurt Cobain. She most certainly did not. No, but that's the narrative, right? Absolutely. Yeah. If she wasn't around, he would still be alive. Yeah, because she acted like a man on stage and she had a larger body than women were supposed to have. And she was tough and she was kind of mean. And people just couldn't put her into a box. And so the narrative about her became worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the insights that I have about the, the new insights that I have, I just read a book called 90s Bitch by Alison Yarrow, and she calls the way women were treated in the 90s bitchification, which is basically to say that if a woman didn't fit in to one of those boxes of expectations, that she couldn't be controlled, that she was someone who was taking too much power from men or from the power structure. And so those women were reduced to their worst traits, and in a lot of ways, they were reduced to their physicality. And all of the women we're going to talk about in this episode and the next, that definition that Alison Yar creates is perfect, right? A woman can't be controlled. She behaves in ways that men or the power structure don't like. She tries to get too much power. She tries to be too equal. And so the narrative reduces her to her worst traits. And it's a, a caricature of her. And As a oftentimes reduces her to her physicality. I cannot repeat that enough because it's going to be true of <laughs> literally every woman we talk about in the next two well, episodes. Well, it also makes them a target for public shaming so other women know what not to do. Yeah, and then, I mean, just about <coughs> any woman who you can name who made great strides in the 90s in any field, arts, entertainment, science, anything, notable women of the decade, they are in some way insinuated to be sluts, Whores, frauds, idiots, freaks, ball busters, lesbians in a pejorative sense, or seductresses, or ice queens, right? They're either too hot or too cold. And, I mean, think about all of these women who we remember wrong. Do you remember Amy Fisher? Yes. Who had an affair with Joey Buttafuoco? Okay, here's the thing. And shot his wife? Can a child have an affair with an adult? She was like 16 years old. He was like a friend of her dad's. Misled and lied to by this man. And she absolutely did something completely and totally wrong. But our narrative of her is also incorrect. Because, again, she was a child. Right. And so there are women who are too hot, like Monica Lewinsky. Women are too frigid, like Anita Hill. Women who aren't feminine enough, Janet Reno. Women who are too sensual, like Tanya Harding. Women who worked hard and therefore that made them bad moms like Marsha Clark. Women who focused on their kids and so were ignored as free-thinking humans. 
And lots of women were grouped and maligned for their sexuality. And I'm thinking mostly about Anna Nicole Smith, Pamela Anderson, and women's like that. Women like that. They wanted too much power and they used their bodies in ways that people were not comfortable with. Which is funny because that's why they became famous in the first place was because yes. of their bodies. Yes. But then, again, they don't read the cultural script right and they do one little thing wrong. Exactly. And now we're going to use all of that stuff against you. Mm-hmm. So... It's a we've created this sexist fake history of all of these women in the 90s. And it was supposed to be a time that all the doors were opening to women. But instead, women's steps forward were responded to forcefully, reduced to how hot someone is, resisted because they didn't fit expectations, marginalized because they posed a threat, mocked because they didn't fit in to specific roles. And today we're going to talk about Anna Nicole Smith, Tanya Harding, uh, and we're going to talk about Nancy Kerrigan a little bit as well because we have wrong information. There's a cultural narrative there too. About her Mm -hmm. as well. (laughs) Next week we're going to talk about Joycelyn Elders, who is a Surgeon General, Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky, and Marsh Clark. So do you want to start with Anna Nicole Smith? I do. Okay, so before you say anything about Anna Nicole Smith, okay, what do you remember about her from the 90s. So if I were to picture her, I would picture her the way she was on her reality show. Okay. Which I think actually is from the 2000s. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, but very goofy, seri- not serious person um, who did pretty much at all times seem in some way intoxicated. So Mike, I never watched the reality show. I know that won't shock you or anything. I don't think I watched it, but I think like maybe from commercials or snippets or I don't know. But that's definitely what I'm, I see when I think of her. When I think of her, I think of this picture of her, which I don't even know if it's real or if it's just in my head, of her husband like in a wheelchair and her pushing him. Yeah. Yeah. That's my kind of go-to Anna Nicole Smith. Yeah. And for sure, she, as many people would say, put herself out there. And so she was a very public person. She wasn't a very private person. And she was okay with being in the spotlight for her body, for her appearance. But that doesn't really justify the way that people treated have her. treated her and the narrative that surrounded her. I mean, people, What do you know about her childhood? Exactly. Nothing. Right. Except I, I know because I did research for today. But <laughs> before that, nothing. I mean, when when she was interviewed, people interviewing her openly just ogled her and asked her about plastic surgery. I mean, she was referred to by respectable publications as an erotic cartoon. And how she was treated, it's kind of unimaginable if we look at it through today's lens. So she was a... Or just even if you remember that she was a person. Yeah, exactly. Which she is has not humanity. something that people tended to remember. She was in Playboy in the early 90s. She may or may not have sent photos of herself. She, yeah, there's a story that one of her boyfriends sent the photos. Yeah, and... I mean, she worked at Walmart. She worked at a strip club. She worked at a fried More chicken restaurant. More than one strip club, actually. And... So, but she sent photos or photos were sent of her and she voluntarily posed for Playboy. And this led to her fame as a pinup girl and eventually a model. Fans liked that Anna Nicole Smith looked like she ate. Right. She isn't that, um, what do they call it? Heroin chic. 
Yeah. She said publicly that she never exercised and that she said that she loved food. She modeled for guest jeans. She was 5'11 and weighed 155 pounds. And she replaced as the guest jeans spokesperson, I think, Christy Brinkley. I think you're right. And so it was a big difference in terms of physique, personality, um, and just approach to modeling in general. I read one article that talked about H&M that she'd been hired to do a a billboard ad in Sweden for Mm H&M. And it was kind of like lingerie looking almost. And Mm -hmm. they put her in a 50 foot tall billboard. And then they put the billboard right by a highway. So there kept being traffic accidents because people kept getting distracted by Anna Nicole Smith and wrecking their cars. And at some point she became too fat for people to accept. There was some invisible line at some point that she crossed and people went from liking that she looked like she ate to thinking. And Washington Post wrote, she's uncontainable by ordinary clothes. That doesn't sound nice. So even though we celebrated her for actually eating food and not exercising and having a different physique than many models, she very quickly, because she passed this invisible line, she very quickly became the subject of mockery. She was fat. And as soon as she became that in people's eyes, she was dehumanized and dismissible. So I think we can actually pinpoint what the line is. Okay. I don't think... Originally, she becomes this cartoon because of the weight. I think there was something that happened before that that allowed us to mock her, and that was her marriage. So in 1994, she got married. Mm-hmm. Do you know the guy's name? Mm-mm. It's a J. Howard Marshall. Yeah, I knew it was Marshall. Yeah. And he had oil money. Yeah. So before he's with Anna Nicole Smith, he actually has like a longtime mistress mm-hmm. that was another really famous Houston area stripper. And she died getting plastic surgery. And his wife had dementia and then she died. And the story was basically he's old, he's infirm, he can't really do anything anymore, but he doesn't want to be lonely. Mm-hmm. So his driver would take him to strip clubs in the middle of the day. And it just so happens that that's how he meets Anna Nicole Smith. Because hmm. she's like the Tuesday shift at a strip club. And so they apparently had this kind of nice relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. But everyone thinks, oh, she's after his money. Right. But she doesn't marry him until after she already got the modeling contracts. Mm -hmm. She didn't marry him until she had her own money. Yeah, and we don't have any idea about why they married each other. There is definitely a kind of comedic trope, right? Oh, yeah. A very attractive younger woman and a very rich older man, Hugh Hefner. But that's when we started making the jokes about her as soon as she got married. Yeah. It was fine for her to be all of these things. Mm -hmm. Oh, but now she's a gold digger. Right. I mean, and again, Washington Post also said she's a mess, right? Wow. These are respectable publications <laughs> who wrote things like uncontainable by ordinary clothes and she was a mess. For her, she marketed her body as desirable. That's how she got out of poverty. That's how she got out of loneliness. That's how she fed her child relationships. And when she didn't fit the ideal anymore, she got basically sent back to, I mean, where people thought she belonged. People just, she went from being this shocking kind of new idea of a model. And we said, nope, actually, she's white trash. She's got to go back to where she came from. People literally called her that. Oh, yeah. People called her white trash all the time. And 
New York Magazine did a photo shoot with her in 1994, and they told her it was a cover photo shoot. They did not tell her what the name of the issue was. In the photo, she appears squatting in a short skirt with cowboy boots as she eats chips. The issue was actually called White Trash Nation. So in 1994, her lawyer initiated a lawsuit against the magazine, claiming that she didn't authorize the use of her photo for that particular issue or that title. Um, Who would? (laughs) Who wants to be the cover person for White Trash Nation? And this suit also alleged that the article damaged her reputation. And she thought she was being photographed to embody the all-American look. The editor said that the photo was one of dozens taken for the cover, further stating, I guess they just found the picture we chose unflattering. The lawsuit was settled. We don't know for how much. But that is the kind of thing that happened to her pretty regularly. And then she got a reality show after her husband died. And it was pretty early in reality show days, wasn't it? Yeah. In the early 2000s, there were two court there were two court cases of her trying to settle with her late husband's estate that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Yes. Two different cases. So her reality show was a spectacle. And a lot of people questioned the production of this show because it was pretty clear that she was mentally ill or at least having addiction issues at that time. And we just watched it happen. We laughed at her. We thought it was hilarious to watch an intoxicated woman stumble down the street or fall down in heels or say outlandish, ridiculous things. And it was a mentally ill person struggling with addiction issues. And we just kind of watched while it happened. So then she started doing PR and modeling for a diet pill company. I remember this. Trim Spa. Yes, I remember those commercials. So she was thinner, which brought her back to the public spotlight in a kind of positive way. Like she was a presenter on award shows sometimes, but she also seemed high. So she was still not taken very seriously and still the butt of jokes. She died with at least eight drugs in her system. And even after she died, continued to be mocked for pursuing basically love and self-worth. Yeah. And... That's what our social script told her to do in the first place, right? Use your body to get attention and love and acceptance. And that's what she tried to do. And that's essentially what we mocked her for in the end. And didn't she have a baby right before she died? She did. I remember that being Mm -hmm. like kind of big news. Her son died while she was in the hospital with the baby. And then... uh, Yeah, her son was like 20-something, right? And then, yes, when she died, her... the. Paternity of the baby was a big scandal as well. Her life is just so sad. I mean, it just, it is. It is. And I think she was a fun person who liked to have fun. And so if people were laughing with her, it was fine. But I think a lot of it toward the end, especially, was people really laughing at her and making a very salacious mockery of her as a person. Well, and if you read about her childhood, when you grow up with that kind of poverty, Mm -hmm. Like, there are stories of her going to, like, fast food restaurants and taking toilet paper because her family couldn't afford to buy any. Mm-hmm. When you grew up in that kind of poverty, right? you would probably do almost anything and let people laugh at you mm-hmm. if it meant that you could support yourself and put food on the table. Exactly. And it's just, it's a very sad narrative. So, 
Before we talk about Tanya and, and Nancy, I do want to say that in the 90s, we started talking about cat fights. It's like a fight between two girls? Right. Something that was constantly in the media when okay. two women didn't get along. And it's something oh, that okay. we still say. Yeah. Cat fight. There's a book that came out in 2003 called Cat Fight Rivalries Among Women from Diets to Dating, from the Boardroom to the Delivery Room. And That's covering a lot of ground. <laughs> yes. And so the author basically says cat fights are a social construct. The dynamic has nothing to do with hormones or something inherent to women wanting to fight each other. It is rooted in this very narrow view of femininity. And just like we were saying earlier, pitting women against each other because we're basing things on these false external definitions of success well and there's such limited room at the top right yes you can only have a few women yes and so really the cat fight sh- the art the author argues is born of this paradox that society conditions women to compete against one another to achieve peak normative femininity but also telling us that competition itself is not feminine right so that's why a cat fight is something that we make fun of or that we talk about because women shouldn't be fighting with each other like that. But at the same time, women should be competing with each other to be the best, most normative feminine woman. But it should be like passive aggressive? Apparently. Okay. (laughs) And so when you hear the term catfight, you immediately think of two women like pulling each other's hair out. Yes. And that became... The narrative of the story of Tanya and Nancy, even though it is wholly inaccurate. That's true. And sports are supposed to be the one place where you can acceptably, socially acceptably, compete with other people. But the rivalry between these two skaters was amped up to degrees never been seen before. So Tanya Harding. Yeah. Is just an interesting person. Yeah. And her background is similar to Anna Nicole Smith. Mm-hmm. She had a rough childhood. So her family is very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got, I think, five older siblings. Her mother is married for the fifth time when she has Tanya. And they are always kind of like barely getting the money together for her to skate. Mm-hmm. And then her parents are going to get divorced and then it gets even harder. So when you think about Tanya Harding, at one point, she's like one of the sixth best skaters in the world so her life is just like so so difficult yeah so not only is she facing poverty and like how are we going to continue to skate where are we gonna get this money from she is also being sexually assaulted by an older Mm half-brother and then her family refuses to press charges Mm -hmm. because they think she's lying her mother was known even by her coaches to have an alcohol problem and there's a documentary from 1986 this is before tanya is really well known called Sharp Edges. It's a film student, I think, that was following her around Mm -hmm. and filmed her. It's so interesting. She's at a competition. She comes in maybe fourth or fifth something. So she didn't win, but she did really well, especially because she's 14. Mm -hmm. And her mom calls her on the phone and says, I just watched it on TV. Your jumps were terrible. You're not doing very good. Why are you even there if you're not going to win? And you can just see this very young teenage girl just look so sad. But she doesn't want to show anybody that she's hurting. So she hangs up the phone and she says about her mom, what a bitch. I think that there is an excerpt of that film 
or at least that scene is described in the ESPN Tanya Harding documentary. They made a 30 for 30 documentary about her. I can't remember what it's called, but that scene is either described or they have a clip from that 1986 documentary because I've seen it or heard about it from from Tanya Harding. And you just see this poor little broken girl. Right. Tanya's story is in the media a lot right now because I, Tanya, came out, what, last year? Yes. And one of the things that's kind of in her narrative a lot is people would call her white trash. So I have a, a chart here in our notes. This looks highly scientific. It's from the book Freakonomics. Okay. And so they're talking about names and what names signify as far as class goes. So these are the top 20 girl names mm-hmm. that signify low education and low income of parents. So scientifically, these names signify that or these are just names that culturally we associate with no, white low no, income No, this parents. is based on data from... Oh, from actual economics. Yes. Okay. Um, so number three on the list is Misty. <laughs> no comment. But number 17 on the list is Tanya. Yeah. And when she's competing, she's competing against people like Nancy Kerrigan. Mm-hmm. Christy Yamaguchi. There's three spellings of Brandy on this list. <laughs> so just seeing her name, yeah, you know, oh, she doesn't really fit in. Nancy actually has a similar background. She's also not very well off, mm-hmm. but she's able to fake it a little bit better than Tanya is. And yeah. And figure skating is a sport that requires a lot of money to compete. It requires a lot of money and the judging is highly subjective and in the 90s was even more subjective and so the judges in a lot of ways could penalize you if they thought you were unrefined or not a good representative of the sport i mean artistic impression which is the wholly subjective part of the score half of the score which means half of the score is basically what I think of you. So Tanya's scores go up when she gets her teeth fixed. Somebody donated $6,000 worth of dental work to her. So, of course, that makes sense, right? Your skating ability depends on what your teeth look like. So she's misunderstood primarily because of what happened with Nancy Yes, Kerrigan. of course. And... One thing that I didn't realize was a misconception because I am and my whole family is a bunch of Olympics nerds. So I (laughs) am very familiar with this. But what I didn't know was a lot of people think that Tanya Harding herself attacked Nancy Kerrigan physically. So, you know, the misconception I had about it. What? You know, Nancy was hit with a they kept calling it a club. Yeah. I don't know why, but in my childhood brain, I pictured like, do you remember when you would lock your car? With the club. I thought that's what she got hit with. I didn't realize it was like a billy club. Yeah. So a lot of people think she did it. Um, and a lot of people even like she this, physically did it. That she physically did it. And if you Google Tanya Harding, sometimes the search engine recommendation is who did Tanya Harding hit? Wow. So it's it's a really big misconception. Right. So, I mean, she didn't ever go to jail, but she was on probation, fined, and banned from figure skating for life. Because she confessed to the FBI of having prior knowledge, right? Or no, knowledge after knowledge the Knowledge after the fact. Knowledge after the fact that she didn't report. Yeah. And there are, there are reenactments that people do of Tanya hitting Nancy in, like, cabaret shows and network tv sketches and those kinds of things help 
perpetuate this false idea that she did the attacking, that she knew about the attacking, and or that she went to jail for the attack. And none of those things are true. I want to talk a little bit about, even before the attack, the way that she's described in skating competitions. Okay. So the phrase that was used a lot for most skaters was ice princess. And that's not a negative thing. It means like delicate and beautiful and graceful on the ice. Yeah. And then there's Tanya. Mm -hmm. Some of the people that would describe her would talk about her as being hulking. Mm -hmm. Or that um, her thighs were gigantic or too muscular. Chunky. Chunky was another word. And they use the word. This is the best part. They use the word athletic to describe her, but they used it in a negative way. Yes. Yes. So even though figure skating is an, a sport and requires athleticism, when they were they were referring to her athletic physique, what they meant is that she didn't look like a graceful ice ballerina. Ice ballerina. She looked like a, an athlete. Right. Which she had to look like that to do the jumps that she did. Right. And really, if she if her performance is what it is, it doesn't really matter. And it's really none of our business how big her thighs are. You know, if she can do. And also, she's still very small. Yes. Compared to to average women lined up on the street. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's not like. (laughs) Yes. What standard are we using here? This is a I mean, just raging body issue problems in the 90s that made people discuss Tanya Harding as being chunky. Yes. And then the other term that was thrown around a lot was trashy because of her costuming. Well, because of her costumes and the music that she chose. So yes, most that's people true. were choosing classical music and she was choosing like the theme song from Jurassic Park. That's that's not a joke. Like no, she yeah, yeah. literally used the theme song from Jurassic Park. Which, if you're trying to connect with an audience and maybe get some endorsements and sponsorships. Or if you're trying to skate passionately, why wouldn't you choose music that you really like? Right. So I want to talk about one of her costumes in particular. Because she got pretty heavily dinged for wearing this costume. Google Tanya Harding purple. Tanya Harding purple. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's this picture of Tanya Harding. <laughs> Where she's wearing this, like, blue-purple skating outfit. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're called. And she's got this flesh-colored piece in the middle. Mm-hmm. And it's cut... In a diamond shape. In yeah. a diamond shape. And it's very... It looks very low-cut. Yes. But if you were standing next to her, you would see that it's just flesh-colored. You can't actually see anything. Right. I mean, really, she's basically covered up to her neck. Yes. But this costume wasn't what other people were wearing, and it was, quote-unquote, trashy. It's like she almost got it right, but not close enough. Right. So we're going to mock her. And compared to what, I mean, if you look at what other skaters were wearing at the time, it is different. But one of the judges said to her, if you ever wear anything like that again, you will never do another competition. And Tanya Harding said, well, give me $5,000. Then I won't have to make my own skating costumes. Right. But until you give me the money, stay out of my face. 
And she was willing to talk like that, again, to judges who had this subjective power over her because she wasn't going to back down and accept being treated that way. And so she's not a feminist icon or hero, of no, course. No, But the way she was treated before, during, and after the incident with Nancy Kerrigan is absolutely unbelievable. One other thing I want to talk about before we talk about what happened with Nancy Kerrigan is that Tanya Harding was married, mm-hmm. which was also outside of the normal script for these Olympic athletes. Yeah, and in fact... A lot of the Olympic skaters, when they did like the footage of them at home, they would be they lived with their parents. Yes. And they often had I mean, they would be like cuddle on the couch with their daddies. Right. And Tanya moved out and got married basically to get away from her mom. Mm -hmm. And of course, because she's fleeing something and not making a really conscious choice about who she ends up with, she ends up in an abusive relationship. There's an article I read that talked about how at one point she wanted to leave her husband. And she's told by several people in the ice skating community, if you get divorced, they're never going to let you go to the Olympics. We're not going to send a divorced teenager to the Olympics to represent our country. What is Who cares? Apparently, divorced people can't jump as high. I don't know. I do want to talk to you about the triple axel, though. Okay. So... Have you watched the video of it? I don't need to watch the video. I've seen Tanya Harding do a triple axel many times in my life. Thank okay. you very much. So in 1991, <laughs> she did become the first American woman to land the triple axel in competition. Yes. And it, it, it was at the time, it is no longer, it was at the time regarded as the most difficult jump in figure skating. and th- And for a long time, people thought, only men were even capable of doing it because it required so much power and strength. So a triple axel, in case you're not familiar, is a leading jump. So you're jumping forward, and while you're in the air, it's three rotations. Three and a half. Three and a half rotations. And you land on one foot or two feet? One foot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot to ask from somebody on skates. And when she did it... The New York Times said, stunning in its athleticism and historic success, in the same article called her reckless for taking the risk. Even though it made history, even though she won at the championships, they referred to her as reckless for taking the risk because we can't trust her own judgment to practice and land particular moves in skating and just like you said the reason that she could do it is she was physically stronger yes than a lot of the other female figure skaters and she realized that was where her talents were like she was never going to win just being delicate right and she didn't want to win she wanted to be a, a powerful skater and So even though she did that great job, even though she was landing things women in our country had never done before, reporters said things like, without those jumps, she's not much to look at. (sighs) But she has the jump, so who cares? Right. And even though she had championships, she never had sponsorships. She had one. One. I can't remember what it was for. I think it was like a car commercial maybe in her hometown. Something. 
So it was yeah. like one. And Nancy yeah. Kerrigan had like hundreds. And there are fi- there are female figure skaters who don't have championships, but because of their skills and the way they execute the sport, I mean, you don't have to be a champion to get sponsorships. So the fact that she was a championship and she didn't really have any. And so in order to make money as a retired athlete, which you retire as an Olympic athlete in your 30s or 40s, if not younger, if she if the thing with Nancy Kerrigan had not happened, she would only have ever been able to make money either getting a completely different career or being some kind of entertainer or like ice capades. Right. And so if we consider her to be white trash, she has no opportunities for any of that. I love the video of her landing that triple axel in competition. She's so happy. And she can't, like, she does this little, like, hand pump, like, yes, Yes. I did it. And the commentators that are talking over the Mm -hmm. the performance, well, we don't know if she's going to try to do it. She's probably not going to try to do it. If I were her, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And then she does it, and they're like, yay! And now women do it all the time in figure skating, and and now people do... It's just like gymnastics. It's gotten more competitive and harder. People do quads now, and um, so... Tell us about the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. So I want to say first, these are not criminal masterminds. Obviously. (laughs) Her ex-husband is Jeff Galuli, and the person who did the actual attack was her sometimes bodyguard, who I think was friends with Jeff Galuli. That guy's name is Sean Eckhard. So Sean and Jeff come up with this plan, and it depends on whose story you believe the most, how this actually unfolds, because there's a couple of different versions of it. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, one version, which I think is probably the most likely, is that there are two reasons for them to do this. One is if they can take Nancy Kerrigan out of this competition, then Tanya gets to go back to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. But also, if there's an attack on a figure skater, then that would increase the need for them to have bodyguards. So it's like a, a win-win. Oh, because he was a bodyguard. Yes. So, oh, if people think ice skaters are under attack, then they will need more protection and therefore I can get more work. What a way to get work. So what's really interesting reading this, I guess, now is just how little security these women had. Mm-hmm. Just basically anybody off the street could go watch them skate mm-hmm. as they were practicing and people did all the time. And anybody off the street could be behind. Yes. I mean, in, there's basically the no security. Back there. Yeah. And Nancy at some point even has, I, I, don't think, I think stalker's too strong a word, but she had a guy sending her some really creepy letters mm-hmm. and still no security. Mm-hmm. So the plan was for Eckert to break her kneecap. Hit her, break the kneecap. That way she'd be out of the competition. He misses. He hits her on the lower thigh, not the kneecap. And then she falls to the ground, and they're filming while she gets hit. And he oh, runs. Yeah. It's on film. He runs off. And what she's saying as she's laying on the ground is, why, 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 why? Mm-hmm. But what everyone reports that she was saying was, why me? Yeah, and we're going to talk about that when we talk about Nancy Kerrigan. But she did say, why? And then she said, help me. And then her dad comes and kind of like scoops her up. Yes. And that's like kind of the loving awe moment in all this. Yeah. And I mean, it was a crime committed by two men, but culturally it is blamed on Tanya Harding. And so Tanya 
maintains that she did not know beforehand. Mm -hmm. There is some evidence that she did know beforehand and that she was maybe even calling around to find out where Nancy was skating at, Mm -hmm. practicing. But what she's charged with is knowing after the fact. So according to, you know, the historical record again, Mm -hmm. we can't prove that she knew beforehand. And I'll just say... I bet so many people were so glad that she was banned from figure skating for life. Yeah. Because she disrupted their notions of what a figure skater was supposed to be. Yes. And by at that point, she just became a punchline. And the other thing to really remember here is that her relationship with her ex-husband is abusive. Mm-hmm. She tried to leave him more than once before she's actually able to do it. Mm-hmm. She's beaten by him several times. So even if she did know beforehand, if you're in that kind of relationship and you are just keeping your head down and trying to survive, mm-hmm. you might not question it. You might just go along with it to keep yourself safe. Sure. Not saying that that makes it right. Right. But I could understand that being a defense. Mm -hmm. Her and Nancy do know each other. And they've even been roommates a couple of times at different competitions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tanya, in some interviews, has said that they were friends. Kerrigan says they're more like work acquaintances. Sure. So that relationship's also kind of up for debate. But our notions about Nancy Kerrigan are also not really accurate. That's true. So people dismissed her as well because she was dainty and girlish in their estimation. People described her with words like elegant. People described Tanya with words like rough. And both of these women were in some way... Their images were manipulated yes. to fit this cat fight. Kerrigan also had to get her teeth fixed to raise her scores. <laughs> so we created a notion in the media of Nancy Kerrigan as the fantasy fairy ice princess. People openly praised her body, her grace, her style. They said she exemplified the feminine ideals She was a girlish skater, so she's young, she's single, she lived with her parents, and she was described sometimes as a music box figurine come to life. That is not a really, that's not how you think of a whole person, right? Right. That is a kind of dismissive, dehumanizing comment, even if it's meant to be complimentary. But that didn't come naturally to her. She also... Grew up in a working class family. She wanted to play ice hockey. She did not want to be a figure skater. But her mother told her that she shouldn't be a tomboy. She shouldn't play with her brothers. And her mother redirected her into the ladylike, in quotation marks, sport of figure skating. And her dad had to work two jobs to pay for it. So, again, we have this idea that she's like this wealthy, well-to-do perfect princess and she also had working class parents the judges the commentators people just could not stop talking about her body and the way that she carried herself and the things they complimented most about her were the way that she posed 
and the way that she glided, which are two things where you're not really moving. It makes you look like a statue. Well, the one like signature move that she had, and I'm going to explain this horribly. You should just go watch a video. <laughs> is she would put her leg out and then she would reach around with the other arm mm-hmm. and like touch the back of her skate. She can grab her skate. Yeah. And it was like this elegant looking mm-hmm. line that yes. she would make. Yes. Really like like a ballerina on skates mm-hmm. is the best way I can explain it. And that was the thing that everyone would comment on. That was what she was known for. She actually had to see a sports psychologist because she had negative feelings and self-doubt and had to basically be trained how to smile more. If you go back and read before the incident, if you go back and read like uh, old newspaper articles, the thing that they would say a lot about her is that she's inconsistent. Whereas like Tanya is always going to try to do the jumps. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes Nancy would have a great day skating and sometimes she Mm -hmm. wouldn't. Yeah. So after the attack, of course, most of the response was sympathy for Nancy Kerrigan. But it didn't really take very long for people to start making fun of her as well. So in some ways, they said that she kind of was the princess of the sport and then she was ruined by this attack. And some people were glad that she was taken down because she was too much of a princess or too much of a ice queen and too delicate for people's tastes. And even though she was the victim of a physical attack that nearly ruined her career, exactly, people still kind of enjoyed her being taken down. Well, and they wanted her to be this like perfect victim. Mm-hmm. But she's also a teenage young adult woman right she was angry she did not forgive easily she i mean because she and she didn't have to she had the right to feel however she felt about it she was accused many times of profiting from the attack sometimes she was accused of not being in on it but in some ways like milking it milking it yeah and this cat fight narrative came up again of these two women hating each other. And so they referred to Harding oftentimes as an alley cat. And a lot of times Kerrigan was was described as being a more peaceful, docile cat. I mean, they were described in... She's an indoor cat. In feline (laughs) terms in some time, in some cases. So most girls our age or around our ages grew up in the 90s and they related to or they rooted for one of these women. And in almost every case, that was Nancy Kerrigan. You hear about it. It's pitched to you as a fight between two very culturally dominant female athletes. And you pick a person who you really care about. And so most people chose Nancy Kerrigan and we felt sorry for her and we wanted her to get better and we couldn't believe what happened to her. But it didn't really take long for people to stop seeing her in this polished way. She came off the pedestal pretty quickly, in other words. So let's talk about what happened at the Olympics. Okay. So. So Oksana Bayul. Oksana Bayul won the gold medal. And she wasn't quote-unquote, supposed to. Right. She wasn't expected to win. Everyone expected Nancy Kerrigan to win. And and so they didn't have the music queued up as quickly as 
Yeah, so after the competition was over and Nancy Kerrigan was viewed as some as a not super graceful loser, even though she didn't do anything really that outlandish. So it did take time. The medal ceremony was delayed while the officials looked for a recording of the Ukrainian national anthem. But Kerrigan thought that Oksana Bayul was causing the display was causing the delay because she was putting on more makeup. Right. That's for some reason she thought Oksana Bayul is somewhere putting on makeup and that's what we're waiting for. And so on a mic, even though she didn't know she was on a mic, she said, oh, come on, she's going to get out here and cry again anyway. What's the difference? That's not really that severe of a diss. It's really not. But you ask me. But this sport is all about always being feminine and ladylike and gracious, even when you lose. Yeah. And so then she didn't march in the closing ceremonies. And at press conferences, she gave oh, what was... Oh, do you know why? No. She had a prearranged sponsorship at Disney. She had to go be in a Disneyland parade. And she was also on a mic at the Disneyland parade. I do know about that. Hold on. Okay. So... In press conferences following the Olympics, people perceived her answers to be curt. Yes. And so she was branded as a sore loser. Yes. Then she was recorded at Disney World. Oh, yeah, not Disneyland. Disney World, sorry. In, in Florida. Florida. Saying, this is so corny. This is so dumb. I hate it. This is the most corny thing I've ever done. Which also, not that bad of a comment. And... Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You've been to Disney World. It's pretty corny. So and you're missing those closing ceremonies because they wouldn't let you get out of this contract. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be a little angry, too. Yeah. So the Washington Post said the Washington Post was pretty yeah, rough. They, like hate these women rough on women <laughs> in the 90s. They said overnight she risked becoming the Shannon Doherty of the skating world. I don't know what that means. Shannon Doherty from 90210. Do you know what 90210 is? I know what 90210 I don't know what that being the Shannon Doherty. I don't know what that means. Do you know who that is? I think I do. So she was like on that show, but everyone said that she was bitchy. Oh, okay. And there's like a club, a nas- like a very big club dedicated to hating Shannon Doherty. I didn't in, know that. In the country in the 90s. Yes. Uh, Washington Post actually wrote, is Nancy a bitch? Whoa. Citing her cat's eyes and chiclet teeth. Man. So she had, and they also called her a defrocked Cinderella. It's like we just can't wait for women to fall. So we can just pound them to nothing. Yeah. So now there aren't a lot of people who think, oh, Nancy Kerrigan, what a wonderful graceful perfect ice skater what a perfect embodiment of figure skating we don't really say that about her anymore no and she didn't fit this stereotype that was created for her even though she never fit it she was never a graceful ice princess she started in a working class family wanted wanting to play ice hockey but she played along she was successful. Well, she, and she was had a family that helped her navigate that cultural script a little bit better than Tanya did. Yes. She played along, she fit in, she was attacked, and then she was perceived to be a bad victim and then a sore loser. And so she was immediately maligned, mistreated, forgotten, ignored. She didn't want to be the princess. And so we stopped siding with her. 
She didn't win and we stopped caring about her. And she stepped one toe outside of our expectations and we immediately culturally dropped her as being someone who was important or someone who was impressive to us. And also right behind her in age is Michelle Kwan. Yes. So we can get rid of Nancy now. We have Michelle. Exactly. And now the retellings of the story are also kind of inaccurate, right? So we focus on Tanya Harding as being like a hero villain, kind of, an anti-hero, a kitschy, rough on the outside, but heart of gold charming kind of. And that's not true either. Yeah, I think the narrative now is like, what if she would have had a better family? I mean, the movie I, Tanya, Margot Robbie is much nicer But also much sassier. But in a more culturally acceptable way. Like not... Not, not mean. Aggressively yeah, not mean. sassy. She she didn't say things like, Pie me, give me the $5,000 and then I'll wear it. Otherwise, get out of my face. Right? That's Tanya Harding kind of said things like that. But the movies changed the perception of her. Even the documentaries that were made about her are very favorable to her, which is fine. I mean, all documentaries have some kind of slant or bias. Or even if they're not favorable, they're making it understandable. And I think it's good to see things from her perspective and to see that she's not just acting out of jealousy, that there's a much more complex background. But they both have more complex stories. And we can't... Right, and you're sacrificing one story to tell the other. And we can't go from saying Tanya Harding is an evil bitch to saying Tanya Harding is a misunderstood working class feminist hero. Like... Stop trying to fit women into these categories. Wait, 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 wait. Women are people? They are, right? So she's neither of those things. Complex and nuanced They people. all live in a gray area. They're not all good. They're not all bad. There's not a hero. There's not a villain. They're just people whose motivations we understand better now. But we're still kind of telling false mythology about both of them. Because it's easier. Yeah. It's just easier. So this is a conversation we're going to continue in our next episode with more misunderstood women of the 90s, more 90s literature, uh, lots more fun, I guess. (laughs) Well, it'll be more fun for me because we're going to move more into the political realm and we're going to leave this pop culture stuff behind. Whatever. What's next in your lady life, Misty? So next in my lady life is just a whole bunch of grading, man. I am just behind this semester. It's killing me. You constantly say you're going to grade it, but you're all behind. Well, they keep turning in new work. I don't know. (laughs) You really need to get a handle on that. I really do. What's next in your lady life? Well, you know, I just went to the opening day of the Texas State Fair. Lots of fun fried foods. It's a great place to go. Have you, I mean, I oh, know yeah. you've been. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, it's here for like a month. I'm sure we'll go back to the State Fair. I do have to do grading too, but that's a boring answer, so I don't want to. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty, and I think of myself as the Ann Richards of this podcast. And I'm Allegra, and I'm just fine with being the Shannon Doherty of this podcast. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is very great. The greatest, in fact. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at Profess Hers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, professors at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. 
Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all of those things, and we hope you recommend our podcast to a friend. And remember, women are people, even women from the 90s. <laughs>